0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today on Race and Democracy, we speak with Dr. Kristen A. Smith, Professor of Anthropology and African and African Diaspora Studies about transnational racial violence, black mothering, and resistance to state violence in the United States and Brazil. Uh, Kristen, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: And I'm really excited about our conversation today because it's really based upon the work that you do around transnational violence, racial violence, especially against black women, the gendered na- no- nature of that violence. Um, and in the age of Black Lives Matter, I think uh, the work that you do is more profound than ever. Um, And it's really got global implications for how we think about gender, how we think about democracy, how we think about both the American nation state, but also nation states in the Americas, including Brazil. So we think about South Americas, Latin Americas. Um, And today I want to talk to you about um, your work in general, but specifically, uh, you wrote a really brilliant article in Transforming Anthropology, which is a journal uh, called Facing the Dragon. Black mother, black mothering, um, sequela, and gendered necropolitics in the Americas. And I want us to break that down. And um, really, my uh, my uh, my first question is, uh, you know, one of the things you talk about is mothering in times of terror, and uh, this uh, this idea of sorrow as an artifact. And in in what ways does this idea of state violence against black bodies? In what ways is that both gendered and transnational?
1: No, thank you. And Th- first, let me say thank you for reading, because I think that as um, as scholars, as academics, we often do this work, but it stays in the the archives, let's say. And so, to bring it out, especially with the social justice bend, which I believe my work has, um, it's important to talk about it and discuss it in a in a public audience. And so this is an important opportunity to do that. Now, in terms of the gender dimensions of anti-Black state violence and its transnational nature, I think that one of the things that I have learned working in Brazil for the past 15 years, almost 20 years, is that there are patterns to many of the experiences with state violence that we have here in the United States in the black community that we can also identify in other spaces. And I think that's the first step of the answer to your question. And so one, recognizing that the kinds of police aggression and police violence that we experience here in the United States, the kinds of racialized bias that we experience in the judicial system, obviously recently everything that's on people's mind is Centoya Brown and the fifty-one years that she got for killing one of her, um, one of her aggressors, and I think that when we when we think about. The racialized system of state violence, we have to recognize that these systems are transnational in the sense that they are in communication with one another. And I'm going to try to break that down uh, quickly, but also break it down so that people can really understand.
0: And can you tell us about the Brown case?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, Cyntoia Brown uh, was 16 when she was trafficked, um, sexual traffic, and she killed one of the people who had solicited her when she was being trafficked. And um, although many of us see that as both a kind of self defense and also a reaction to her her victim status as somebody who was being trafficked at that time um she was convicted on first degree murder and just recently a judge a judge in Tennessee where she is incarcerated um decided that she needs to spend 51 years in jail before she's eligible for parole
0: that reminds me of the Joanne Little case in North Carolina who who was raped by a prison guard and ended up killing her rapist um, and there was a big free Joanne Little case um, in the 1970s
1: absolutely and I think that that I'm glad that you bring that up because we can look back over time and see cases like this. And I, there's another case, and I think her name was Celia, and I can't remember her name right now. Um, but the case will be familiar to people where there was a, a young black woman who was enslaved. This is during the, during slavery times here in the United States. She was enslaved. She was purchased for the explicit purpose of being raped. Hmm. And eventually killed her rapist Mm -hmm. and was pregnant by him when she killed her rapist. They waited for her to have her baby and then the baby was born stillborn. And once the baby was born and born stillborn, they, they hung her. Um, because she was convicted of murder for that. No attention paid to the fact that she was serially raped over time. And so the reason why I think this is an important aspect or important story for us to think about the transnational dimensions is that one aspect of my work is really thinking about how we can gender our understanding of state violence through time and space.
0: And what do you mean by
1: state violence? And so by state violence, I mean violence that is either perpetuated by the state or violence that is sanctioned by the state so the criminal
0: justice system
1: the criminal justice system writ large so think for example george zimmerman when we think about george zimmerman we think about a civilian killing another civilian trayvon martin in this case but for many of us we recognize that the state in actuality, deputized George Zimmerman to be able to kill Trayvon Martin. And it's because of that deputization that he was able to walk off scot-free without getting any time or charge it, or without getting any time or conviction for that murder. And we know that it was murder, right? And so when I talk about state violence, I think about the state in that frame. How is it that the state has a hand in the kinds of vi- the ways that, Structural violence is perpetuated against Black folk. And that does not only happen at the hands of state agents, it can also happen at the hands of a system. And so it could be the police, it could be judges deciding that you need to serve 51 years, like in the case of Santoya Brown. Or it could be folk who are allowed to kill Black people and particularly Black youth without suffering any consequences and the way that things like stand your ground laws allow that to happen. And so in that regard, I think about the state writ large. And so if we think about the history of the state and we think about the history of the American nation state and its ties to slavery, transnational slavery, its ties to anti-blackness in particular, Okay. Um, And so particularly the ways that American nation states and when I say American, I'm always referring to all of the Americas were started as colonies that then grew slave colonies and colonies that were built on a plantation slave system that then grew into nation states. Right. There is that anti-blackness that's very much embedded in them. And that is something that you find repeated across the Americas. It's not just something that we find here in the United States. And so what I do in my work is really try to identify those existing connections through time, right? So from here back through slavery, but also through space, United States to Brazil.
0: Now, can you explain, in this article, you talk about facing the dragon. What do you mean by dragon, that term dragon? Because it definitely reminded me of some of the the Black Power um, literature that I read um, and study. Um, and, and people used to call America a belly of the beast. They used to. There were, there were many different sort of metaphors for the United States um, and what it represented. So what do you mean by the dragon?
1: Absolutely. So that's actually a quote from Audre Lorde. And so part of the inspiration for this particular article was Audre Lorde's essay, Man Child. And so for those people who don't know um, who Audre Lorde was, she was a poet and called herself a lesbian mother warrior poet Um, and one of the foremothers of black feminism in in many ways. And she had two children. And... In thinking about how to raise a boy as a woman who had these multiple identities, she wrote an essay called Man Child. And in that essay, she talks about raising a child in the belly of the dragon. And the dragon for her is the American nation state. And she names that explicitly. And what's interesting is that if we go back through her essays, you'll see that when she refers to America, and she's referring to the United States, but I've expanded it to also include all of the Americas. But when she refers to America, she always refers to it as a dragon. And she thinks of it as the belly of the beast. And so I'm I'm very sure that it's a a it is a fruit of the times. And so she's writing in the 1980s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly these essays are early 80s, right? And so that's that's part of her activism and, and, and her organizing um, background that's coming through that language. But it's definitely coming from Audre Lorde and her understanding of the American state nation state as a patriarchal, white supremacist, heterosexist, capitalist space of oppression.
0: And I want you to before getting really diving deep into your research in Brazil and Austin, I want you to unpack those terms. You know, mm-hmm. when when we mean cuz I think sometimes people listen to those terms and they say, "Well, what are people talking about?" I mean, they might understand the they've heard of the word capitalist uh, but they probably think of white supremacists as Klan members, mm-hmm. um, and by the time you get to heteronormativity or heteropatriarchy, you've lost them. <laughs> right. So what, what, let's unpack. Though, what, what are we saying?
1: No, absolutely. Well, one? I want to make sure that I'm citing, very, citing correctly everyone that I'm that I'm invoking here. And so Audre Lorde talks about those things, but so does bell hooks. And I think that if anybody's interested in really unpacking the ways that the connection between patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, heterosexism, and white supremacy, I would really encourage people to read Bell hooks's work on this because it's definitely her concept and her understanding of it. Um, but in the purpose of this conversation, patriarchy is literally the ways that we assume that Men and masculinity and male figures should always be in the lead and everybody else should fall behind. And so when I think of patriarchy in particular, and I talk about it to my students, one of the things I talk about are the ways that we see the nuclear family as a pyramid with the man at the top the wife at the bottom and the children at the bottom and everybody at the bottom falls under the 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 uh, power um, reach of the man who's at the top. But interestingly enough, patriarchy as a structural understanding of power also allows us to think about the nation as a family or transnational global power structures as family structures and the ways that Men and masculinity are always seen to be that which should decide the fate of everything else beneath it,
0: right? And so that means that this notion of patriarchy even impacts anti-racist and social justice movements because in that case, these movements, even if they're resisting white supremacy or even if at times they're resisting capitalism and talking about socialism, the world they're reimagining um doesn't question patriarchy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's been a lot of great work on um some of our beloved black movements from the 1960s and 1970s that did just that. Wanting to disrupt the racial order and the and the stru- the, the way that race and racism function but not really paying attention to gender. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pay attention to gender, are you really disrupting the power structure? And I think that in terms of the relationship between patriarchy and white supremacy, we have to remember that for generations, we as Black people have been infantilized. And so if the nation state is a patriarchy such that he who has the, he who, he, he, excuse me, he who is the father figure is the white male landowner that our founding fathers here in the United States imagined as the citizens, right? The true citizens of the nation, the one who could vote and actually decide the political future. Then as black folk, historically, we have actually been in the place of children and property. And so that's the connection between white supremacy and patriarchy. In many ways, white supremacy, and when I talk about white supremacy, I want to be sure we're not talking about just the Klan. We are talking about the Klan, but we're not just talking about the Klan. We're talking about all of the ways that we, as a society, assume that certain people are racially inferior and therefore, that there is a there there is a privilege to whiteness there's a superiority to whiteness and that whiteness is somehow more advanced or more developed than everything else and so if we if we think about white supremacy in that way as a logic mm-hmm. then when we look around the world we see lots of examples of the ways that white supremacy gets reproduced by people who don't have hoods on their heads
0: absolutely and, and that, really by states absolutely by institutions within the nation state um, you know, I was fascinated by the case studies of the police killings in Austin and Brazil that you talked about. Very, very moving. Um, and and you, you talk about so much state-sanctioned violence uh, against um, these black bodies. But in very specific ways, you also talk about mourning and radical mothering and how when um, mothers lose their children, uh, there's a real reverberation um, and they're left in this in-between space between um, being living and, and being dead. So I want you to talk about that. Um, uh, you know, how does this anti-black violence really how how it works transnationally? You give a couple of specific um, um, instances and case studies, um, and how does that impact uh, Black folks and Black communities? beyond the criminal justice system, you talk about the politics of uh, seeking help in terms of therapy. You talk about mothers who are unable to keep their jobs in the aftermath of these these, these murders of their children. Um, so and, and yes, there's more, but yes.
1: No, I think um, let me say that, let me let me start by saying this. I started this project because as a mother, I recognized that there was something very insidious that was happening with the family members of the young folk that I was seeing getting killed in Brazil and the United States that people weren't paying attention to. And that is the fact that in the aftermath of of killings, particularly police killings, um. And I talk a little bit about that in the article as to why specifically police killings. We could talk about all murders and all violence writ large, but there's something about the, way, the relationship between police killings and grief and repetition over time that I want us to pay attention to. And that is the fact that the state is, as citizens, right, technically we are citizens, And so if legally we are citizens, then structurally the state should take care of us. And there's something deeply insidious about the state doing the very opposite. And instead of ensuring life, actually seeking out death, right? Which is also where the term necropolitics comes from, but I'll go into that later. And so I started to see the ways that mothers of young people who were killed by the police were literally dying slowly in the aftermath of those killings. And I started to see that in the beginning in Brazil. I was doing work in Brazil, and I was working with an, an, an organization called Será Morto, Ser A Morta, React or Die, which is an organization that works with the families and and communities of people who have either been killed by the police, disappeared by the police, or incarcerated. And I started to, at different events, I started to meet the parents of these, fam- of, the, of these kids that had been killed. And I started to notice the ways that the mothers get sick and slip into a depression that is deeper and more life-altering than the depression that we see, I think, normally. And I also started to see that the way that their lives were completely unraveled by these killings because of the, sh- the state nature of it. And so it's not just that people were getting killed. It was that people were getting p- killed and mothers and families had to go into witness protection programs and had to go into hiding and couldn't work anymore. And because they couldn't work anymore, they also could not they also could not be in their friend groups and they had to leave their neighborhoods and they had to uh, leave their jobs. Many of them stopped eating. Many of them started to actually go lose their, their, their mental faculties and not be able to relate to society. And literally, I saw the ways that this was killing them slowly. And so even the ones who were strong and who were fighting were often getting heart disease um, pneumonia, other kinds of very adverse health effects, and some were even eventually dying. And I would, and I would actually see that that pattern happen. And when I started to look at that in conversation with a collaborator who is uh, one of the co-coordinators of Reactor Die when I was doing an interview with her in 2012 and she was talking to me about um, the violence and this is somebody from Brazil in Salvador Bahia where I've been doing my work and she was talking to me about the impact on the family and as a medical doctor, one of the things that she said was, you know, we never think about the ways, the adverse health effects that these killings have on the family members and when she said that, I started to, and, and she said, she used a specific word, which is a word that is used f- relatively frequently in Spanish and Portuguese, but not but less so in the United States, in English. Um, and that word was sequela, which literally means the lingering, the, 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 the after effects of disease, the deadly after effects of disease. And so when she was talking about that, I started to really kind of think about the transnational pattern. And I started to say, you know, this is something that is happening, not just in Brazil, but it also happens at home where I'm from in the United States.
0: And, and when you think about all these police killings in Brazil and you talk about death squads, one, I want you to talk about what's the racial implications here because Brazil is so racially diverse. And two, um, what is the precipitating uh, cause for this? Because we we know in the United States, mass incarceration in the last 40 years, it was rooted in the drug war, a prison boom, private prisons, sort of um, when you think about neoliberalism and sort of the privatization and sort of the abuse of public funds um, um, for, for, for the rich, for the 1%. Why is it happening in Brazil? on this scale.
1: Mhm. I think that that question is a very important one because it actually it it also goes back to this question of the transnational. And so it's very much tied with the drug war or the quote unquote drug war. It's very much tied to the militarization of policing transnationally. The transnational discourses of policing and zero tolerance, community policing in quotes. And the ways that we are increasingly becoming policing states, not only here in the United States, but also abroad in places like Brazil. And so one of the things you asked about was the death squads. And so Brazil's death squads can be traced back to the early, some people would, I would say the early 20th century in in terms of. Exact tracing, but we could even make the connections back to the 19th century um, with the secret with the secret police and Brazil's secret police, and particularly what what are death squads? Death squads are clandestine groups of. And this is the technical definition, clandestine groups of vigilantes that exact killings outside of the law. That would be the dictionary definition. But in Brazil, the actual lived definition is that police officers form groups where they go in the dead of night and actually execute people. And that is something that is much more common there than it is here in the United States. And disproportionately, the people that they are targeting are young black men. That should sound familiar to any audience that's familiar with, black, with anti-black police violence here in the United States. The methods are a little different because we don't necessarily have the kinds of culture of, of death squads that we have here in the United States. But that connection to policing is very familiar. And so when you're talking about death squads, you're also talking about something that's extremely complicated, this connection between on-duty policing and off-duty policing. And so at what point does somebody become, b- become a police officer and what point are, do they stop being a police officer?
0: In our country, you never stop, really.
1: And I would argue, and the people who I work with in Brazil would argue, that you never stop in Brazil either.
0: Yeah, you're always on duty here exactly. because there's so many times when off-duty police officers get into some kind of um, conflict with with ordinary citizens, usually black, that dovetails into this question about necropolitics. You know, you talked about um, sequala, mm. um, and can you explain the term necropolitics and and how the work that you're doing, how it how it it both theorizes death and its aftermath on black families, but especially black women. Why are, is it so important? And what do we what do we glean um, both theoretically, but in terms of practically, and even for policy? Uh, transnationally when we focus on on women.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So necropolitics is a term that was coined by Enshil Mbembe in 2005. At least that's the article that was translated into English is in 2005. Um, And in that article, he's engaging with uh, Foucault's notion of biopolitics. And so Foucault has this notion of biopolitics where he talks about the ways that the state engineers life and controls life in the everyday and 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 what Mbembe is attempting to do is really think about the ways that the state is also engaged in manipulating death and how is it that in addition to wanting to control the, the minutiae of everyday life the state is also interested or the sovereign, in, which is in the terms that he's using, but it's very theoretical and technical terms. The sovereign is also interested in, in trying to determine who who lives and who dies and on what terms. Right. Which also goes into Agamben and some and, and other theories um, in philosophy for those who are interested. So necropolitics, in essence, is the the, the subjugation of life to the powers of death. Right. Um, And particularly when the way I'm using it is with regards to the state. Mbembe doesn't gender that. What I try to do in my work is to also gender it. And so in what ways is policing and police violence actually not just about controlling the lives of black folk by harnessing the powers of death. Right. Killing police killing is literally harnessing the powers of death, but also Black women. And why Black women? Because as I mentioned before, there are mothers who are literally dying slowly because of the loss of their children to police violence. And for those of us that, that may seem kind of general and nebulous, but I would only bring up two cases here in the United States that I think are really key. One is the case of Vanita Browder who was the mother of Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was a young man who was incarcerated on Rikers Island, subject to abuse and solitary confinement for years. He was incarcerated as a juvenile and he was jailed because he couldn't make bail when he was arrested for when he was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack. And we later later found out that he didn't steal a backpack. Um And he- Khalif
0: Browder is the subject one of the subjects of Ava Duvernay's the 13th documentary.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so what people may not know is that um, Khalif Browder committed suicide shortly after, um, a little over a year after he was released from Rikers Island. That's something that that mental illness that is the result of incarceration to me is also part of this sequela, right? It's one of the sequela of state violence. It's a a disease that is developed as a result of the state violence of incarceration, right? Mental illness and suicidal um, tendencies. And so he committed suicide in his mother's apartment. A little, almost a year later, his mother died of a heart attack. And when we think about Vanita Browder's story, this is – Vanita Browder literally single-handedly championed her son's case from the beginning to the end. She fought tirelessly. She – and I don't like to use the word tirelessly, but I, that's the only word that's coming to mind right now because we all get tired from this work. But but it's a matter of speaking. She fought relentlessly. She, she did everything in her power to bring attention to her son's case. And – when you, when you see her family members talk about her heart disease and her eventual, her eventual death after he was killed, many people said she died of heartache. And I believe she died of heartache. But I also believe that when we think about her dying of heartache, we, we have to resist the temptation to say this was natural causes. Because is it natural to lose a child to that kind of violence? And is it it natural for us to have every aspect of our life upturned financially, emotionally, structurally, and not be given the resources to be able to deal with that? Because, you know, where is the state restoration in the case with Khalif Browder and his mental illness because he was incarcerated?
0: And one one of the things you you do in your work is you provocatively, you argue that, this is happening purposefully. So this is different from saying um, some kind of conspiracy theory, but this is saying that the state is anti-black, these nation states, both in Brazil and the United States. And especially you look at working class people and working poor people and just poor and unemployed communities, really a global peasantry here in the Americas and how the state is purposefully targeting black mothers and potential mothers. Because one of the things you do is look at Patricia Hill Collins and the notion of blood mother versus other mothers. Mm-hmm. And Black communities mm-hmm. are filled with people who are mothering, including the case Larry Jackson, Austin, his 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 sister, La- Likiza. Likiza, mm-hmm. who who's also another another mother. So I, w- I want you to talk about um, that in terms of why are they targeting Black women, but then also... Um, talk about how these women in Texas and Brazil, how they're organizing against this patriarchy, how they're organizing against this this violence.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, why do I say that they're they're being targeted? Because my argument is built on a notion of structural violence. And structural violence, the theory of structural violence, um, Johan Galtung would say that structural violence occurs any anytime there is a gap between the potential of life and the actuality of life. And that gap leads to the eventual death. And so if we look at the fact that these mothers are being left to die, that their children are being targeted disproportionately and structurally, and that in many ways the state actively turns its back on these mothers when these things happen. And I would even take it a step further, actually vilifies the mothers. Because if you look at these cases over and over again, think about the ways that mothers are portrayed in the media. Think about the ways that we talk about mothers. Think about- Black mothers. Black mothers. Absolutely black mothers. I can't help but think about Leslie, Leslie McSpadden. Having to stand there in the street and look at her dead son for four hours, Michael Brown, and yes, michael brown, her son michael brown and and ha- and not being able to get close to him, not being able to 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 even do anything and and being subjected to constant kind of subtle disrespect in that particular situation and and explicit disrespect in that particular situation. And that is a way, when I think about that story and I think about all of the stories that I know of in Brazil and the United States, and I think about the ways the state deliberately distances black mothers from their ability to mother, making it an impossibility, then to me, that's what I mean by targeting. So how it is that black mothers are not allowed, and when I say, and I'm glad you brought up the other mothering from Patricia Hill Collins, because I want to be very, very clear. I think that this is a gender inclusive way of thinking of mothering. And so for example, I can give you examples of black trans mothers who mother people in their community that to me would fit into this rubric as well. And I think Miss Major is a good example of that out in California. And so This this the ways that the state intervenes in our ability to mother as black mothers is to me what is targeting to us. And beyond that, there is an insidiousness to that distancing that also caught that also leads us to die. And that is something that I want us to really think about. And I I, I can't help but think about the, the case of Erica Garner as well. And I think about her as an other mother. Obviously, she's Eric Garner's daughter, and so she wasn't his mother. But in this rubric of other mothering and blood mothers, et cetera, from Patricia Hill Collins, then we can think about her as an other mother.
0: And, and- Eric Garner's black man who was choked to death uh, in Staten Island, New York, for selling cigarettes illegally, and famously, "I can't breathe" were his last words, and that became that video became viral, and so many young activists connected to the Black Lives Matter movement and anti incarceration anti-mass incarceration you used that slogan and you you, you discussed that very well Absolutely. i can't breathe yeah
1: i mean it's interesting cuz i wrote this article before she passed away and so in january 2018 this year um she she died of a heart attack uh, and she was in her early 20s
0: and this is erica garner this is
1: erica garner his daughter and erica garner was the forefront of the movement and so part of this theory is about this theory of sequela is about really trying to understand what is the toll that our fighting for our lives is taking on us physically? What is the toll? And, it, and, and, and you have a young woman who had some health challenges but also just recently had a baby. Mm-hmm. We know from all of the work that's been done around the relationship between Black women, racism, and premature, and, and, and premature death following pregnancy or, or prenatal health issues that one of the reasons why black women have so many prenatal heath- health issues is the stress of racism. And if the stress of racism can be directly tied to prenatal health issues and black women dying prematurely, then what does the stress of losing somebody to police violence do to your body, to Absolutely. your life? And that's the kind of connection that I'm trying to make. And those are connections I'm making across the Americas.
0: Well, I want to have a final big question for you um, that tries to really pivot and and build on this work, but uh, look towards a sense of optimism in the sense of, I think, reading this article, I was very, very optimistic as well. And I want to ask you about your sense of optimism about the ability of Black working class and grassroots communities to resist this dragon um, and reimagine new ways of, of, of living. And, and and new ways of being and building new new communities and how how they could impact the state whether that's through policy whether that's through politics whether it's through nonprofits whether it's through just grassroots community networks are you are you seeing that and and are you optimistic about um, this kind of political organizing and resistance that's transnational as well
1: mhm when you ask that question, I immediately think about um, the the mothers of the 12 young men who were massacred by the police in, in Salvador Bahia in 2012 in the Cabula Massacre, what we call the Cabula Massacre. And they have been organizing to put pressure on the state of Bahia to um, actually... Uh, find the police officers responsible for that massacre guilty and and very quickly what happened with that was that the police invaded a neighborhood called Kabula um in this in the part of the neighborhood called Villa Moisés um, they pulled out the young men w- w- young men who were hanging out in kind of a vacant field where people kind of gathered and were just hanging out generally um they surrounded them took them into the woods and executed them one by one And so, um, and we know that because some of them escaped.
0: And why did the police do this?
1: Why did the police do this? This is a very excellent question. Um, The police's version, the first version, which has since then been completely dismissed, um, was that they were in a gun battle with with a gang that was organizing to try to rob a bank um that was absolutely not the case the courts have found that a- that was absolutely not the case the young men were shot in the back um their their clothes were taken off to hide the fact that they were they were shot in the back they were it was staged as if they were part of a gang um the motivations the the, the official motivations that have been said by the state um have not been satisfactory. And like I said, they said that this was some sort of gun battle. They've, they've retracted, they've stepped back from that. Um, those in the community will say that this was a terror technique. This was about the, cons- the ways that the, the police seeks to terrorize these communities and keep these communities under control. And I am, I, I agree with the community members. And so the, but the mothers in that case have been experiencing unprecedented um uh, Persecution, um, getting terrorized by the police, getting intimidated by the police ever since then. But despite that, and this is the answer to your question, but despite that, they are organizing and they have come together. And they stay, they, they are putting pressure on the international, on international human rights organizations, including Amnesty International, um, Uh, Human Rights Watch, also putting pressure on the Organization of American States and the the Inter-American Human Rights Commission um, to pay attention to this case. They have been fighting in the courts. They just lost one of the aspects of that fight, unfortunately, where they were trying to get the case federalized and get it out of state court and put it in federal courts in Brazil. They lost that um, a couple of weeks ago. But that has not taken away their desire to fight. And so... I believe, quite frankly, and the reason why I say that this is a targeted kind of violence in my article, because I believe, quite frankly, that it is because of black women's ability to resist. It is because of our ability to fight back. It is because of the way that our very organizing and our love as black mothers is a threat to the state. That is why we're targeted. And so it's not as if it's not as if our resistance is, a f- is the opposite of what is going on or is a reaction to what is going on. It is our resistance that is the cause to mm-hmm. what is going on. And so I would encourage us to think about it in a different direction. It, it, it's not what, it, what are black women to, doing to respond to this violence, but why is it that we must understand and think of this violence as a reaction to the ways that black women are changing the world mm. and are pushing back and are trying to protect life and black life. Because at the end of the day, that's what this is about. At the end of the day, this is about what are the stakes of protecting Black life and ensuring Black survival. And no one ensures Black survival and protects Black life more than Black mothers mm-hmm. in whatever form that they come. And so that's why we are the biggest threat to the state. And and that's why we are, our organizing is the biggest threat. And so you have mothers organizing. Lucy McBath, um, the, the the mother of Jordan Davis, just won in Georgia in this past uh, election cycle, which was wonderful. She I She won think a congressional? She won a congressional seat, absolutely. Um, and, I think that, and I know that Leslie McSpadden, the mother of Mike Brown, is also running for an office um, in Ferguson as well. And so, there are mothers who are choosing to do this through the political lens mm-hmm. um, and the and the more traditional route. There are mothers who are organizing within themselves mm-hmm. um, in ways that uh, try to bring it back to the community. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to think about new forms of policing, for example, policing abolition, for example? Um, I think Black women have been at the forefront of that. And I would say that that would be a Black mothering type of, of, of a political manifestation, the abolition movement. And also Black women are also organizing against police violence quite directly and, and, and trying to figure out ways to push back and to speak back. And I think that we're always constantly resisting it's just that we need to we need to think about what that looks like in the everyday and the different the different levels of it so i would i would characterize black mothers resistance from everything from just fighting for the everyday survival of black children in your community and so i know for example Black women who are organized. Hey Aja, for example, the organization that I work with, has a community school um, that primarily uh, services young bl- young black children in a space that is heavily policed and heavily targeted by violence. That, to me, is a form of resistance all the way up to directly confronting the state. Thinking about ways to rethink the structure of the state, i.e. abolition. Thinking about ways to restructure the way that that we do um, our judicial system, prison abolition as well, and elected office, which is a more traditional route. And I think that we there there are many different examples of the ways that people are resisting and pushing back. And so I don't want this. I don't want this conversation. I want this conversation about sequela to draw attention to a public health crisis that to me, requires our attention because if, 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 if we take into account the black women who are slowly dying from police violence, then the problem with anti-black police violence is much bigger than we think about. I always talk about the nuclear bomb. And so you would never just count the people who kill, were killed in a nuclear bomb in the moment. You also count the people who die of cancer and the after effects over time. And so police violence is a nuclear bomb. We have to count the ones that die in the moment and also the ones that die eventually, and so that to me is really the 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 big issue that we have to think about. But in addition to that, we also have to recognize that that is not the only that that's not the only thing that's happening. Black women are constantly resisting, even if this violence seems mammoth and 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 unwieldy,
0: okay, well, <laughs> thank you. Um, This has been a great conversation about the um, poetics and politics of radical mothering uh, in an anti-black world, in a state of uh, anti-black violence and suffering. Um, But I think we ended on an optimistic note in the sense that all these mothers, uh, whether they're blood mothers or other mothers, are organizing um, and really resisting and trying to construct a new way of being.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for, for having this conversation because, again, I think that this is something that in order for us to really seek justice, this is something we're going to have to pay attention to and start to address as a, as, a, as a world
0: community. No, absolutely. Black Lives Matter is global. Is Black global Lives Matter is in global.
1: Scope,
0: <laughs> in scope. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph that's P-E-N-I-E-L J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.